Hello, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Gene. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Well, all right. Today, we are going to discuss the U.S. responses to the rise of totalitarian dictators and their rise to power in Europe. We have Hitler in Germany. We have Mussolini in Italy. We have Franco in Spain. We learn how the U.S. responded with their neutrality, providing our allies with the means to make war, but not necessarily getting involved ourselves. We also discuss the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe, as well as here in the United States. With us, as usual, is our resident history expert, Jean Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. All right. So today we're going to talk about anti-Semitism in the United States and the U.S. response to the rise of a number of totalitarian dictators that come to power in Europe in the 1930s. Now, people seem to think that the anti-Semitism that was alive and well in Germany and throughout Europe throughout the 1930s and 1940s was only happening there. But the truth is, it was very much alive and well here in the United States. But in order to understand why these people came to power in the 1930s, why there was anti-Semitism, we have to go back in time a bit. Jewish immigrants arrived as early as the 1600s in North America, and they lived in what was once known as New Amsterdam. The majority of the Jewish population living in the United States were primarily Sephardic Jews from places like Spain, Portugal, Brazil, Amsterdam, and England. At the height of immigration to the United States, which is roughly between 1880 and 1920, it's estimated that about 3 million Jewish immigrants from Europe entered the United States. Many had fled Europe to escape the pogroms. The term pogrom is a Russian word, and it means to wreak havoc or to destroy violently. And it's used to describe the violent attacks against Jews living within the Russian Empire. Jewish people during that time, during the pogroms, they were raped, they were murdered, their homes and their businesses were looted. So people fled. People fled for safety. And for many of them, three million, they came to the United States. After Hitler comes to power in the 1930s, there are a series of laws that are passed and they kind of whittle away at the civil rights of Jewish people. And it goes all the way to the extreme of what becomes known as the Holocaust. This was not a secret. You can't hide the transportation of people. You can't hide anti-Semitic laws. It was very much out in the open. And countries around the world knew it, and the United States knew it. President Roosevelt called for an international conference on the refugee crisis. There were so many people looking to leave Nazi Germany. The policy at first in Nazi Germany was to encourage the Jewish people to leave. And many did, but they fled to other countries that would eventually be taken over by the Nazis. And at that point, they weren't, you know, pushing people to leave. They were pushing people into ghettos and to eventual concentration camps and then murdering them. So there are a significant amount of people, refugees, who are looking for asylum. They're looking for safety. And so President Roosevelt calls for an international conference on this refugee crisis. And delegates from about 32 countries 
They gathered in Evian, France in July of 1938, but most countries refused to change their laws in order to assist Jewish refugees. In the 1920s, the United States passed a series of immigration legislation that essentially created a quota system. So only a certain number of immigrants would be allowed into the United States. After 1938, only 27,370 people born in Germany and Austria could be granted visas to immigrate to the United States each year. In most years, the U.S. government issued far fewer visas than the maximum allowed. There was not a desire to welcome immigrants. It was the opposite. The only exception made was that this group wasn't required to have to take a literacy test. Immigrants who were likely to become a public charge or dependent on the state, they were banned entirely. So we didn't, we were limiting immigrants and we we did not want any immigrants that we thought would be a public charge or would become dependent on the state. Those types of immigrants were banned during this time and with those laws. The country, in the midst of the Great Depression, there is a want and even a need not to add to the unemployment rate. So the notion that we already have enough people who are without is pretty much commonplace. And so immigration is being restricted in the United States. It's being restricted around the world. And in the 1930s, the world is witnessing this very rapid and alarming rise of totalitarian dictators. Not only is the United States in the midst of a great economic crisis, but countries around the world are as well. And people are looking for answers and for individuals who could promise a better, brighter future. People seize the opportunity to take them up on that offer in the hopes that they would be able to do it. So this period marks a significant turning point in global history as the actions and the ideologies of these dictators had far-reaching consequences that would shape the course of the 20th century and beyond. In the 1930s, economic crisis, political turmoil, social unrest, all of these things are setting the stage for the rise of totalitarianism. The Great Depression sent shockwaves throughout the global economy, leaving millions of people unemployed, destitute. They have no job. They have no place to live. They don't have food to eat. People were desperate for solutions, and they looked to leaders who promised stability and a way out of the chaos. In Europe, the aftermath of World War I left deep, deep scars on the continent. The harsh terms of the Treaty of Versailles, which blamed Germany for the war, they imposed heavy reparations. These things bred resentment and a desire for revenge. You know, this fertile ground of discontent, it allowed dictators like Adolf Hitler in Germany, Benito Mussolini in Italy, and Francisco Franco in Spain. It allows these people to rise to power. They capitalize on the you know the nationalist sentiment and the promise of a return to glory it also the great depression sets off a chain of events and the rise of these totalitarian dictators is part of those chains of events and once these people come to power it sets off another set of chain of events and all of these separate 
issues are all going to lead to the start of a second world war and lead to a genocide against the Jewish people of Europe. Today, we're going to discuss what the response was to the rise of Hitler, Mussolini, and Franco in the United States. We're not going to get into too much detail about you know, what happened within Germany, within Italy, within Spain, because this is a podcast geared towards U.S. history. So we're going to be looking at it from how did the United States response. So I don't want you to think we're leaving anything out. This is the purpose of the podcast. I'm sure there are great podcasts on European history that will have more of that detail. No, for sure. Yeah. Or maybe maybe someday we'll do world history repeated. Who knows? Oh, God. Okay. That's more work. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get into Germany. Adolf Hitler, the leader of Nazi Germany, he capitalizes on Germany's economic turmoil and the grievances that people had from the end of World War I in order to propel himself into power. Through his powerful rhetoric, and he was a very passionate speaker, he promises to restore Germany's greatness. And Hitler was very good at tapping into the fears and the desires of the German people. And he garners their support and he and he gets their loyalty. The United States' response to the rise of Hitler, you know, Hitler comes to power in Germany in 1933. And at first, many U.S. journalists describe Hitler almost as a caricature. He was known for his you know, loud, boisterous speeches, and the press likened him to the actor, the silent film star, Charlie Chaplin. You know, they have this very similar facial hair. The original thought was that when he rose to power, he might become more moderate or that other prominent German politicians would, would seize power instead. You know, people kind of looked at Hitler as being a flash in the pan. They didn't think he was going to last, but none of those things happened. It's also no secret his hatred for the Jewish people. The United States and really the world underestimated him and just how much a beaten down Germany would go along with his policies The American press did write stories detailing new anti-Semitic policies and pictures of the aftermath of events like Kristallnacht. And, you know, people were angered. They're motivated to march. People do march. They boycott German businesses. It's, It's front page news. People are writing to elected officials. They're using their own funds in order to bring Jewish families over from Europe. And it's, uh, I'm sorry, to bring Jewish families over from Germany and its acquired territories. But the articles don't cause the uproar that they should have. Anti-Semitism was alive and well in the United States. The country is dealing with problems of their own. We are in the midst of the Great Depression. You know, the question comes, you know, how do you get people to continue to care about an issue when there's all of this news happening? In Mein Kampf, Hitler writes out his goals clear as day. Newspapers quoted Nazi officials as saying that Jews who get out early would be wise. American journalists in Germany are reporting on the events and Nazi policies targeting Jews and other groups that are labeled as undesirables. Articles on the boycott of Jewish-owned businesses 
book burnings, the banning of Jewish people from certain industries. This is all in the news. There are pictures. American diplomats are reporting on these events to government officials. There are some protests within the United States, but not much. Another thing we should talk about is the 1936 Olympics. The 1936 Olympic Games, they were held in Berlin, and there were some calls to boycott the Games. The United States, as well as other Western democracies, began to question the morality of sending dignitaries and athletes to the Games being hosted by the Nazi regime. Olympic officials even considered moving the 1936 Games from Berlin. But when Olympic officials were given tours of the accommodations and were shown that Jewish athletes were being treated fairly, the Games remained in Berlin. You know, you have to understand that just because people weren't seeing what was happening to Jewish people doesn't mean it wasn't happening. Anti-Semitic posters, they're being taken down. Things are being toned down while the games are going on, while you have foreign journalists, while you have foreign dignitaries, while you have foreign athletes, things are being toned down. But when the games were over, it was back to business. Ultimately, the U.S. representatives and U.S. athletes did attend the games. Many Jewish athletes from around the world did choose to boycott the Berlin Olympics and did not attend. The 1936 Berlin Games were a huge success for Hitler and for Germany. During the games, like I mentioned, anti-Semitic posters and signs were removed. The hope was for Germany to dazzle foreign dignitaries. And they did. The games were a huge public relations success for Nazi Germany. Diplomatically with the United States, the official recommendation from the State Department and the Roosevelt administration was to maintain cordial relations with the German government, but to have the U.S. ambassador to Germany do what he could to, you know, unofficially protest the Nazi policies towards Jews of Europe. Over time, it became clear to the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to Germany at the time, a man by the name of William Dodd, that the the Nazis were an increasing threat. And he resigned over not being able to persuade the Roosevelt administration and the State Department to step in and to do something prior to the U.S. getting involved in World War II. It's also important to note that American companies had a big interest in Germany as they had significant investments. We're talking companies like IBM and Coca-Cola. These investments didn't decrease after Hitler came to power. In fact, they increased. IBM, for example, they do significant business with Hitler and the Nazi party. Their technology was instrumental and allowing the Nazis to keep records and to get the information that they wanted and they, they needed to carry out their plan. IBM technology allowed for information for census data, military logistics, Jewish ghetto statistics, train traffic management, even concentration camp statistics, you know, things like capacity, how many people could a camp hold. 
The census in Germany was instrumental in identifying the ethnic background of individuals living in Germany, living in its territories, which of course would continue to expand. The IBM punch card and their card sorting system was a precursor to the computer. Now, there's a great New York Times article by a man by the name of Edwin Black. And in this article, he discusses how more than 2,000 multi-machine sets were dispatched throughout Germany and thousands more throughout German-dominated Europe. Card sorting operations were established in every major concentration camp. People were moved from place to place, systematically worked to death, and their remains cataloged all with icy automation. IBM Germany designed the complex devices and the specialized applications. Many in their top management were comprised of Nazi supporters who were arrested after the war because of their party affiliation. Lawsuits were brought against IBM for their part that the company played, whether knowingly or unknowingly. We're talking lawsuits as recent as 2001. These lawsuits were eventually dropped. One, because it was feared that ongoing litigation would slow down payments to Holocaust survivors, but also because there was no known proof that IBM officials sold their machines to German counterparts knowing what they would be used for. IBM's German division paid $3 million into the German fund for Holocaust survivors. And it's also important to note that this was done without any giving of admission of guilt. So it's important to know this. It's also important to know that, you know, IBM maintains that they did not knowingly sell these things, you know, with purpose of what they would be used for, but it's what happened. Another company, Coca-Cola, in the years before World War II began, Coca-Cola, like many American companies, they were working to create an empire overseas. One country Coca-Cola was successful in creating a European market in was Germany. Huge amounts of the popular drink had been shipped over for the 1936 Berlin Olympics. When a rival German soda company saw Coca-Cola caps with a Hebrew writing on them to show it was kosher, they tried to persuade German officials that Coke was a Jewish-owned company. German businessman, a man by the name of Max Keith, he sent Coca-Cola employees to Nazi rallies so as to align the brand with Nazi party supporters. Eventually, when the United States got involved in the war and the syrup to make Coca-Cola couldn't be sent to Germany, Max Keith created a new company which made soda. And that company is, of course, Fanta. Wanta Fanta? Wanta Fanta. There are other companies that worked with the Nazis. Hugo Boss, member of the Nazi party himself, his company made uniforms for the Nazi regime. And in their factories were people sent from concentration camps to work as slave labor. More companies than most people would realize did business with Nazi-controlled Germany. Now, Italy. So Benito Mussolini was the Italian fascist dictator who comes to power in Italy. And he too takes advantage of similar discontent in Italy, like Hitler did in Germany. Mussolini capitalized on the economic hardships and the nationalistic sentiment that was stemming from the Treaty of Versailles. And he kind of positions himself as, you know, the savior of Italy. His use of paramilitary squads, the exploitation of fascist 
propaganda allows him to consolidate his power and to silence dissent, often with violence. In Italy, Mussolini's fascist rule meant the suppression of political opposition, strict censorship, and the indoctrination of Italian youth through propaganda. Dissent was met with harsh punishment. Those who spoke out against the government, they risked things like imprisonment or even execution, a lot of times public execution. Mussolini, known as Il Duce, following a 1922 march on Rome and a mass demonstration of fascist troops that led Italy's king to appoint Mussolini as prime minister. By 1925, he had declared himself leader for life. Even though Mussolini had fierce American critics, he also had his supporters within the United States. This changes after Mussolini invaded Ethiopia and when Hitler rises to power in Germany. At first, many in the American press dubbed Mussolini a movie star and spoke of his charisma. But of course, writings about him change. In Spain, Francisco Franco comes to power. The conflict in Spain is known as the Spanish Civil War. But within the conflict, you don't just have Spaniards fighting Spaniards. It is very much an international conflict with money, weapons, fighters, all coming into Spain from a variety of countries. It begins in 1936, and the fighting in Spain lasts three years. Hitler and Mussolini side with the generals. The Soviet Union gives its support to a group known as the Loyalists. When the Spanish Civil War began in 1936, U.S. Secretary of State at the time, man by the name of Cordell Hull, he followed American neutrality laws and he moved quickly to ban arms sales to both sides. The United States also didn't get involved in any mediation attempts. The U.S. did send non-military items, though. President Roosevelt privately supported the Republicans, and he worried that a nationalist victory would allow for a greater German influence in Latin America for decades. Don't forget, Spain had colonies. Latin America was seen as our backyard or neighborhood, if you will. And we wanted to prevent European interference in this region. The Republicans spent almost $1 million a month on things like tires, cars, machine tools from American companies between 1937 and 1938. War is a big moneymaker, right? Some American businesses supported Franco. The automakers, uh, Ford, Studebaker, General Motors, they all combined sold a total of 12,000 trucks to the nationalists. The United States' unwillingness to choose a side did not stop American citizens from traveling to Spain in order to fight. 2,800 Americans fought in the Spanish Civil War, and some fought in what would become known as the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. It was named after the U.S. president who led the United States during its own civil war. Both Hitler and Mussolini gave Franco help during the war in Spain. When the Spanish Civil War ended, General Franco was in power and remained so until his death in 1975. Spain does not get involved in World War II. They remain neutral. 
during the Civil War and the years that followed, thousands of Spaniards were killed and opposition was squashed. Unlike Hitler and Mussolini, Franco's regime survives World War II. In the post-World War II era, Franco's Spain eventually joins the United Nations, and during the Cold War era, it made more sense to have an alliance with Spain as opposed to them looking to the Soviets for any kind of aid. The drive to have access to military bases on Spanish soil, that was another motivating factor for us to repair and build relations with Franco's Spain. During FDR's presidency, totalitarianism posed a significant threat on the global stage. Understanding the context of totalitarianism during this time is crucial to appreciating FDR's actions. Totalitarian regimes such as Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin, they are, they are on the rise. They're seeking to expand their influence to suppress individual freedoms. And FDR recognized the dangers posed by these regimes. And he understood that inaction would only allow them to grow stronger. In the global context, FDR witnessed the devastating impact of totalitarianism firsthand. He witnessed the aggressive expansionism of Nazi Germany and the horrors of the Holocaust. He saw how Stalin's Soviet Union imposed its will on Eastern Europe, spreading communism, stifling democracy. FDR understood that if the United States wanted to protect its own freedom and democracy, it had to take a stand against totalitarianism. But laws limited his ability to do that. You have things like the Neutrality Act of 1935. It banned the exportation of arms to any foreign nation at war. The Neutrality Act of 1937 allowed the president to make distinctions between countries at war. The United States allowed some countries to purchase non-military products. And in 1939, this law is amended to allow the sale of arms. So you see the evolution of these neutrality acts because the hope was if we can aid our allies with the means of war, our soldiers might not have to use them. In the United States, events like Kristallnacht were front page news nationwide for several weeks. At his November 15th press conference, FDR said that the attack had deeply shocked the American public and announced that he was ordering the U.S. ambassador in Germany to return home. The United States was the only nation to take this diplomatic action, and the United States would not have an ambassador in Germany again until after World War II ended in 1945. Even though events like Kristallnacht had, quote-unquote, deeply shocked the nation, even though people were using their own funds to try to bring over Jewish people to immigrate to the United States, Polls in 1938 showed that 94% of people disagreed with allowing a larger number of Jewish immigrants from Germany into the United States. There were 10 to 11-year waiting lists for visas for European Jews who were looking to escape Europe. In countries like Romania, the wait list was 43 years long as less than 400 immigrants would be allowed in yearly from Romania to the United States. Anti-Semitism wasn't just in Europe. 
It was in the United States. It was all over the world. You have people aware of the horrible atrocities happening within the continent of Europe. How do you get people to keep caring about something? You have the atrocities of the Spanish Civil War, you know, specifically the bloody Battle of Guernica. You have proof of Germany's war machine. You have stories of what Mussolini is doing in Italy. People do not want another war. They are reeling from the Great War. They are trying to survive the economic depression that we now know as the Great Depression. And policies of appeasement are a better choice than potentially another war. No one could see what would unfold in a few short years. The United States is experiencing the worst financial crisis it has ever experienced and once again adopts a policy of neutrality. When FDR is elected president, he sees the potential for war. He hopes our country, our soldiers can avoid it, but he begins to make preparations so that if the day comes, we will be ready. We begin to institute policies to supply our allies with the means of war in the hopes that our soldiers may not need to use them. But of course, being students of history, we know that our soldiers would need them and did need them. So in our next series of podcasts, we're going to start talking about FDR and all of these events which lead us into World War II. That was very good, Gene. Okay, well, we're moving toward World War II. That's going to end this podcast. Stay tuned for the next one. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Tell your friends what you heard here today and have them listen and subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on social media to find out when our next history happy hour may be. There is always more to learn. Talk to you soon.